92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan mull the 1996 Even Further rave, which saw the American debut of Daft Punk, and they also check in on the development of Chicago House in the mid-1990s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or, shall I say, Techno Roll, which means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And today we're talking about Blue River, Wisconsin, May 24th, 24th to 27th, 1996, and the event was called Even Further. I don't know why I started with the location rather than the event, but Ryan, because you know, it's mind blowing. It's Wisconsin again, and Wisconsin having such an important part in America's rave history is kind of beautiful. It is pretty cool. I mean, and obviously this is Matos's telling of the story. It's not the whole story. And, you know, as he said, he disincluded entire scenes like Boston and Miami that were, you know, very major. He had to make choices. He's telling the narrative, but I like the way he's doing it. We've been to Wisconsin before for the, uh, semi-disastrous grave event on Halloween 1992, I believe. And this continues the story a lot of those same promoters and brings in a major character in the form of Daft Punk, who are going to be in lighter chapters, kind of dunking the football in the end zone when um, EDM finally does conquer America or making the big breakthrough that causes EDM to conquer America in 2006 at Coachella. And also he sneaks in a pretty nice history of mid-90s Chicago house. Yeah, there's a couple of things in here. There's uh, the little segment on Chicago House. There's a little section on uh, Parisian house and rave, and uh, you know, and but the main focus is uh, further thrown by the Drop Base Network, which is considered the first rave festival to ever be thrown in North America. Um, there was apparently one in Chicago that only five people came to, so it's not doesn't really count even uh, further. And all of the the future furthers are basically considered not the blueprint because I don't know if you want to follow this blueprint, but they, it's they pretty rowdy blueprint and messy. Yeah, 
they they definitely pioneered the rave festival, which went on to pioneer the music festival in North America and turned America into the fest land that it is these days. Well, Woodstock might want to argue with yeah on that and Newport, but we won't we won't we won't we won't we won't hair split. Um, yeah. So it starts with the drop base network, and even though it's a full what two years past the last chapter, nineteen ninety six last chapter is 1994 this chapter really goes from all the way from 1992 through 96 and catches us up with developments in the midwest and in chicago starting with the drop base network these were the guys kind of the only promoters left standing after the grave debacle in 92 in milwaukee kurt x and patrick spencer were the top promoters in the midwest and they stayed out of milwaukee after their lesson at grave and it's interesting he gets a little bit into x background and and these rockers, I you know, had I known that this scene was so welcoming to rockets like myself, I would have been into it a lot sooner. But what can I do? I can't go back. Well, in. you have to remember that Kurt X is considered a bit of an oddity in the in in the rave scene these days. He is kind of unusual because he's kind of anti-plur, full rock, a little bit almost considered a Satanist by many people. So he's he's not your typical rave promoter. He's he's definitely. Uh, Definitely, definitely out there. Let's just put that out on the fringe. And and but you know he's a kiss kid as a kiss fan, uh, growing up in the seventies. Then he learned punk from Joan Jett and the Clash. Then he was a, a a dancer at dance clubs, dancing to industrial and house. And industrial once again has this important pivotal role, kind of between synth pop and high energy and house and and keeping people dancing in the 80s <clears throat> right up there i guess with latin freestyle in new york and other things and and we've seen x not just in the grave chapter but he was also in one of the stat the storm rave chapters uh, a couple chapters ago <clears throat> and he came back from the show in the stable the storm rave the final storm rave in staten island in december 92 at, as an evangelist for the way they were doing it there. It's interesting, his compadre Tommy Sunshine, who went out there with him, was like, oh, God, please don't emulate this stuff. Why? What What was it that he took from the Storm Rave? That was the one thing I wasn't quite clear. because The hardcore. Were... It, was, ah. it was the hardcore, because uh, the final Storm Rave had a whole bunch of hardcore gabber, and basically what X took away from it was this is the shit that we need to be pushing. This is the sound that we need to carry. Let's let's move on for from from house and techno and only do hardcore or at least focus on hardcore. Like obviously uh, the thing about drop bass is that they were very into hard, hard acid techno and hardcore. And I think that's where Tommy Sunshine was like, dear God, because, you know, the harder the beat, the harder the drugs usually and uh you know tommy sunshine didn't need help going further down that path at the time no and we'll continue to discuss tommy sunshine's drug abuse as this uh, episode continues yeah and it's uh makes a comparison between the midwest rave scene in the early 90s and mid 90s and the hardcore punk scene in the u.s in the early 80s where punk was declared dead both commercially in the united states and aesthetically in england there was there was still some underground punk in england crass and uh they exploited and uh, discharge and other bands but it wasn't as vibrant as the punk scene in the states which just went underground once corporate america said we will not put out punk records it's got to be new wave or nothing uh lots of bands said screw you we're just going to do our own thing underground and and it got harder and harder and, and developed into all kinds of things um 
you know, all including grindcore and all kinds of crossover metal and metalcore, et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing happened here in America where um, people adopted the scabber stuff and the hard, hard, hardcore and and pushed these limits. Drop-based parties were an endurance test, they say. Yeah, most scenes had a hardcore rave crew, and the big question was whether your city's hardcore crew were the fun, bouncy, gabber hardcore types or, like, the nozzin, bluten, ear-damaged, noisecore types. And drop bass was hard asses and hardcore right up to the edge of noisecore. And if 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 that hard wasn't your cup of tea, then drop bass wasn't going to be for you. And Kurt X used to say he got into flame wars with other promoters in different cities who wouldn't even let him fly at their events because they felt like he was anti-plur and bad for the scene, trying to push this kind of techno-pagan vibe that he was not stealing. He was that he would that he had picked up from the Spiral Tribe in in the UK and was trying to import into the Midwest. Yeah, it's interesting the way this stuff, the cross-pollination, cross-continental pollination, is just going on all over the place, and it's fun to see what people in what regions picked what elements of other scenes to to incorporate into their own and another aspect that we um that another thread that gets woven in into this chapter as well is again the connection with the old school hippies of the 60s x reads uh the electric kool-aid acid test by tom wolf which was about king casey's merry pranksters and i was pretty proud of myself uh, if michelangelo is listening I, I caught him in a mistake. He credited that book to to Ken Casey. So uh, for for once, <laughs> I got I got, but it's a simple type. I know, big deal. But the kind of thing, petty petty little thing that I enjoy. Um, but he he reads the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, which is about that first wave of '60s LSD explorers. And they talk also about one of his colleagues, um, David Prince of Reactor Fanzine, who develops this close relationship with Timothy Leary through this whole thing, which ties us back into the uh, Bay Area chapters. So this this and also this chapter talks a lot about deadheads showing up, people like the Rainbow family and others that are showing up in the in the aftermath of Jerry Garcia's death. You know, the dead had been literally the top drawing concert act throughout the 1980s and into the early 90s and even had a top 10 hit in the late 80s. So they were packing Meadowlands Stadium in New Jersey and the parking lot and had this just cult that followed them around and sold acid to each other and tie-dye T-shirts and played, you know, whatever, the hacky sack and all that kind of crap. And now they've descended on the rave scene uh, now that the dead has stopped being um you know an active force and and x also talks about how or i guess prince wasn't quite clear did he talk to x but anyway one of them says we were over e and now we were doing acid which is an interesting contrast this last chapter where they had been doing lsd and then ecstasy came to detroit late in milwaukee and and the the midwest countryside scene the i-94 scene they they had already burned out on e and moved up moved up or moved on to acid um and so they they expand the team a little bit they rope in david prince of reactor also woody mcbride of minneapolis who's also a dj he'd been promoted on his own as more the minneapolis organization for rave enthusiasts he ropes these guys in and makes these things bigger and bigger and you know despite the talk about you know he's not into plur a lot of people do give x his due for quote he had a vision and knew the mechanics of how to get things done. He had a lawyer. He wasn't afraid to talk to cops. And Kurt had his shit together in a world where a lot of people had their shit falling apart, according to David Prince. And so that ability to take care of business, always important. Yeah, Drop Bass was an amazing combination of seat of your pants promoting and like synergistic rave power. A lot of these parties would be announced like without any venue lockdown. 
And then the event would just come together through the sheer willpower of this small rotating army of drop base members. And I don't want to say it was disorganized because they had a system down that worked, but it was chaotic, possibly by design. So, and, and, and Kurt X took his conceptual ideas seriously. Once he had read the Kool-Aid test, he realized there was like a whole other level to preaching the word of psychedelic transcendence. And he wanted to get in on that. So for, you know, semi-satanic anarchists and just for the record he wasn't satanic it was just kind of a vibe that he found funny and that they kind of pushed that way the drop base guys were serious about some of the brainier concepts about partying so x was a big believer in the uh, temporary autonomous zone where they and and their whole idea was that they had set up the venue and the sound system but once you're inside you are completely free to express your truest self and that was kind of the vibe that they had and the idea behind why they wanted to do further where they could take this temporary autonomous zone and they could put it really out outside of civilization where you truly could do whatever you wanted. And that's a little flashback to Simon Reynolds, who's interested in that kind of intellectual framework in a way that I don't think Matos isn't. I don't know that he's not interested in it. He's just not including it in the story because he's got well, so much. But I feel like you sent me a longer article Matos made about the first Further Fest, and I'm left wondering if that's what the chapter would have looked like before deep cuts took place to the underground is massive, because it's it's sad because it's it's a great book. But the amount of flavor include, included in that Red Bull Music Academy article from Matos is just it's so high. The book gets the facts and the bird eyes view, but the article gets you down in the muck and the acid and the mud with all the ravers. And, uh, you know, he, he goes into a lot of stuff in there that, that don't make it into the book, a lot of testimonials and everything else like that. And you start to realize, okay, he wasn't joking when he said that so much got cut out. Yeah. And, and he's recycled in other places, but I'm in trouble with Steph because I'm late on my cue. So the first song is Aphex Twin live at further Apex Twin, live at Further, 1994. Why'd you pick this particular snippet of what's an hour-long track, an hour-long set? I figured, uh, you know, I wanted to give people an idea of what Apex Twin DJing in, you know, 1994 would sound like. And uh, it's not all like this. It was a pretty harsh snippet, but I wanted to show that, yes, he does play that harsh stuff out, stuff out live. But uh, he, he kind of builds up to that from, like, a lot of other funky stuff. Apparently, he just brought a suitcase full of his clothes and then like a bunch of records kind of uh, secreted away in the middle of it. And he just popped the suitcase open once he got there and just pulled about 20 records out and just was kind of rotating through those. So I just felt like this was a good a good example of, of the stuff that he was playing. And if people want to hear the whole set, it is on YouTube. Yeah, and well worth a listen. It was I was reading some discussions of it on Reddit and people arguing about whether it was actually him or not. And then the consensus seemed to be, I mean, it is him, but the, the consensus seemed to be, oh, he's playing 
a DJ set, that's not just him playing original stuff. It's he's also playing other people's records, so that's why it doesn't necessarily sound exactly like the Aphex Twin we know and love. And then so after X comes back from Staten Island, one of the first shows he does is is Grave Reverence in October 30th, 1993, a sort of a redo of the the original Grave debacle. The Flyer screamed Return of the Techno Pagan Ritual. So yeah, there you go. Um, they, they, he very much was self conscious and had a philosophy that he was doing. But the first further event happened in Hickston, Wisconsin. On May Day, 1994, drew in about 1,500 people, more than they were supposed to have on the scene, more than they expected. And and Maltos calls it the first serious attempt at a U.S. rave gathering of the tribes. And if you just read through the list of the DJs, you can see why that is. They had Aphex Twin headlining for 500 bucks in airfare all the way from the south of England, Cornwall. They had three German DJs, Hoshi, Roland Casper, and Spectral Emotions, a.k.a. Thomas P. Heckman. They had Scott and Robbie Hardkiss from San Francisco, their manager DJ and DJ, Wade Randolph Hampton. They had Barry Weaver from L.A. They had Frankie Bones, Adam X, and Micro from Brooklyn. They had Nigel Richards from Philly. They had Deadly Buddha and Diesel Boy from Pittsburgh. Terry Mullen, Jajo Merlin, and the Superstars of Love, a.k.a. David Alter from St. Louis, Big showing from the St. Louis scene, which we haven't heard about. So, be, you know, I assume that's one of the scenes he had to cut out, but I'd be interested to hear more. They also had Drone from Minneapolis, who did a three hour jungle set. So, yeah, I mean, that can, I guess, if they had some, they needed somebody from Miami, maybe, and, and whatever was going on in Boston. But that represents a big swath of the American rave scene right there. Yeah, you know, you have the entire uh, Midwest road crew, like basically if the Midwest is willing to drive there, then they were going to, you know, have connections and be able to draw in DJs. You know, the whole thing sounded pretty magical, except for the fact that they decided to do it at the end of April, beginning of May. Uh, what sticks to me out to me here is that decision, uh, you know. America basically figured out where the weather got bad, drew a line, and everything above that is Canada. But if you look at a map, Wisconsin is above a lot of that borderline because of the Great Lakes. So they are just as cold as Canada. And drop base having further at the end of April was an insane choice. Like, I feel like one of the reasons ticket sales were initially iffy was because if anybody looked at it from the outside, they knew it was going to be cold. They knew it was going to be wet. And, and they were right. But once the date came and the event actually was happening, uh, you know, the word of mouth got around and they pulled in 1,500 people. And the reviews were good. People said it was magical, albeit freezing and muddy. Well, I feel like that's like uh, one of those things where you go in and you go through this this time. You know, everybody says they were cold and they were wet and it was miserable in a lot of ways. But you have a lot of fun. And there's actually like uh, scientific papers on the bonding effects of like going going through a miserable experience with people like bonds you to them like chemically in your brain so i feel like there was a lot of that going on it was like the best of times the worst of times and everybody got through it and they came out feeling galvanized exciting stuff so you had the deadheads in the mix as well as a bunch of candy kids who were into happy hardcore so happy hardcore gets a little mention not not a big top musical topic in the book and and people quoted saying wow we have a movement here so this concept of gathering the tribes and bringing people together um 
expands people's minds and, and lets them know that this stuff is going off on all over the country, that there are different aspects of the scene, um, different types of music, and, and they can all come together and have a, a big party. And Tommy Sunshine's uh, uh, kind of a star of this segment that he ends up on videotape saying, I'm on 19 different drugs, but uh, fortunately he has sunglasses on so you can't see his eyes pinwheeling, as Matos said. And he approached the party as a last stand. I was either going to OD or move out of the Midwest. <laughs> so. Yeah. But I'm glad he lived to tell the tale. I mean, you know, and and the police uh, did shut it down. And I believe I'm not sure David Prince was naked right when he shut down the Hard Kisses show. The Hard Kisses came on after FX Twin, and um, they had told him they were going to personally arrest him. And so he he took that one seriously and shut down the Hard Kisses. Although they had to um, shut them down like three times because they kept uh, starting up again. And not getting the message. So, well, you uh, know, is is this a is this a shut the music down because the cops are here, or is this a quote unquote shut the music down while the cops are here? Yes, that, there's always that. You know, um, a lot of times, especially in the early days before the police got really serious and knew knew what they were doing or had had adopted this crush it, kill it, destroy ethos about rave, um, they were kind of lackadaisical sometimes and you could do things like just wait a few minutes and then turn the, the music back on but they um take their time planning the next one uh, don't get their stuff together until uh, the spring of the next year and this time they go for memorial day weekend instead of may day so the end of may so that even further to the next show may 26th to 28th 1995 this time they about double the people roughly 3,000 people and um it was in a ski lodge in northern wisconsin although it was more ad hoc than the first x had had fallen out to some of his collaborators including woody mcbride that was over a, a record label and there's massive rain and again uh the weather is a factor here and this time you get spiral tribe his heroes from england i guess that they were operating out of france by this point having been run out of england by the authorities there also had T terry mullen back and dj apollo and mark burbo so um uh, an expansion and consolidation of what they had done with the first for and and still as wild of a ride because yeah uh, they had to have everything up on the top of the hills because the because the rain was turning everything down in the valley where they had originally planned on holding the event into uh into basically like a running stream and so you had people camping out on you know like 30 degree angles on the on the ski hill and uh, so it's you know just just your standard snafu uh of a rave a great time but uh just a just a mess situation normal all effed up so yeah get used to it and let's hear our next song this is dj funk bitches with three exclamation points from 1995 <laughs> Like a donkey sweating that pussy in his skin, kind of funky. Harry, Harry, legendary. Took it to the house and I popped that cherry. So if you get it, you better admit it. And if you don't get it, you better get with it. Work it, jerk it, bump it, hump it. 12 inch gauge for the pussy and I bump it. Then no, no, but holy stuff. DJ Funk and I want to bump. That was DJ Funk's Bitches from 1995 kind of a musical non sequitur from what we've been talking about what's it doing here yeah I, I swear it'll make sense by the end of this episode because we do take a trip back to chicago and we do talk about ghetto funk and booty house and this here is a booty house classic and once once we get into the booty house section i'll bring bring back bitches in a way that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, and we are simply reflecting the music of the time and the attitudes of the milieu where this is not our sexism, et cetera, et cetera. So a little disclaimer there. And now we take this detour to France, which I remember the first time I was reading this, I was just like, what is going on here? But it's if you know anything about EDM, you know, if you're going to France, you know who you're about to be talking about. But they start with a guy I wasn't expecting to start with. That's David Guetta, who's one of the poppiest of the poppermost in in the 2010s, one of the people who really brought EDM to the top of the American pop charts. I didn't realize that he went back this far, but he started uh, promoting shows uh, in, as early as 1989 in Paris, uh, the Unity show he would do at Paris's Rec Club, Rex Club, which was a gay rock club. And initially, he was combining house and hip hop, hence the name Unity, and drawing about 300 people a night. Um, and then by 1993, Guetta has become the artistic director at Le Queen, which is the number one trendy gay club in Paris. Um, and he hired DJ Nick Nice. And I love that this book has an index because. Matos is pretty elegant with his references, such that a lot of times he's only going to mention somebody's last name if he's already talked about him in that chapter. And so I had to totally look up who now who's Nick Nice again. But it turns out he's somebody who's been popping up in chapter after chapter. He's originally from Wisconsin and he had traveled to England and, and back and forth. And um, he was kind of the guy who hooked Paris up with the cutting edge of the Chicago house scene because he could go home. And he knew where to score uh, the good stuff, the new stuff, the hard to find stuff out of Chicago and brings it over to Paris, which I did always kind of wonder what is the deal with Paris and house music? Because it's not just like handbag house or the kind of commercial clubhouse that was dominant in England. They, they were into Green Velvet and the other funkier stuff. Yeah, they got in on the ground floor through this hookup from Wisconsin. And once again, it's so weird I mean, there's nothing shocking about the idea of people from New York kind of ending up somewhere and, and, and being the A&R or the, the import distribution guys. But when you hear about a guy from Wisconsin who goes in and brings the Chicago sound to France, uh, it's uh, what, a, what, a, what a wild web that's being weaved. Indeed, indeed. And, and, and by the mid-90s, the Paris scene has split. But like a lot of other scenes were doing at the same time, he had house in the clubs and he had hardcore and trance at the raves. And David Guetta is one of many people who settled kind of on the house side. Uh, Martin Solvig was another who started at Le Palais, which was more of a straight club, but the similar kind of kind of uh, ethos. And it wasn't like Daft Punk were the first modern dance, electronic dance music producers in France. You already had had people like Laurent Garnier uh, doing Acid Eiffel in 1993 under the Nom de, Nom de Dance choice. Uh, that was him, uh, a guy named Shaz and Ludovic Navarre. Um, but Daft Punk, no doubt, are the people who put France on the international uh, dance music map. And um you want to yeah, they've 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 got they've got their tendrils in a bunch of stuff. A lot of the other artists that are well known now in France usually ended up intersecting with them. One of the first things that uh, Thomas Bangalter did was with Manu Le Malin, who was uh, uh, the big uh, tech, uh, hardcore techno, hardcore gabber pioneer in France. And they did a, a, a crazy hardcore track together that was released on Lenny D's Industrial Strength Records uh, sublabel IST. And it's funny because this is the first piece of vinyl that Daft Punk ends up out on and they get credited as uh, draft punk, I believe. 
And yeah. so it, just because of a, <laughs> of a typo. So it's, it's funny that, you know, they make it to this point, but when they first started, they were about as important as a typo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and oh, well, that's going to happen. <laughs> and they got their name because they had an earlier incarnation and we should introduce it's Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Omen Cristo. Is that, yeah, yeah, no, that was good. That was good for that was good for an Anglo, <laughs> for a Texan Anglo stumbling through. But they had an earlier band called Darlin, and the New Musical Express, one of the big English uh, music papers of the day, had called it Daft Punky Thrash. So that's where the name Daft Punk came through. Bangalter is kind of the outgoing frontman of it, and um, and and. Herman Homan de Cristo is or Homan Cristo is called Guy Manuel. Yeah, Guy Manuel is more the behind the scenes guy, but but apparently musically, uh, they're pretty even because um, they've they've maintained a partnership all this time. Yeah, you can go and both guys have an impressive body of work through 20 or 30 pseudonyms and they have a, a label cry to more, which is worth going and checking out as well, which really brings Chicago ethos to French touch uh, aesthetics. So, yeah, no, uh, but 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 continue. Yeah, and, and I also want to highly recommend um, Matos has a number of playlists on Spotify. He has a playlist for each chapter of this book, and those are highly recommended. Excellent choices uh, every time. Spotify kind of drives me crazy. I don't personally use it because you can't upload songs. You only have what they have in their inventory, so you can't always get the specific remix you're looking for or whatever, but he does a great job of filling those out, and those are well worth checking out. And I think to, another thing to me, like – for somebody who's learning about this music and and is it's all kind of new, it's really helpful to put it in chronological context. And when you hear something like Daft Funk, which is kind of the first big record by Daft Punk, when you hear it in the context of other stuff that was being played at clubs and raves in fall of 1995, it really hits hard. You can, I mean, it's I'd I'd heard it, but I'd heard it in the context of other Daft Punk records and and. You know, it sounded good and everything, but when you hear it in the context of its time, you can see why it just leveled floors. I mean, it is banging. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like there's uh, because Defunk came out with a weird video uh, with the dog, and the music is kind of placed in the background. It almost didn't a disservice to to Defunk for for the mainstream audiences who didn't kind of realize how kicking it was. But there's a really cool quote in the book. Uh, from Music Magazine, where they said that Defunk is uh, the bastard son of Queens, another one bites the dust in Hard Floor's experience. So that, that's a pretty good. Once once you listen to that, you hear that description, then you listen to Defunk again, you kind of open your eyes to the fact that, okay, I see all of a sudden how this one here would have really like captured people's imaginations on the dance floor. Yeah, and, and it's also it has, you know, it's built around this great bass line, and it's got that smooth, I mean, they, they call it, you know, what French touch or filter house. You can tell it's, it's in the house side of the family tree, but it's got those big fat mid range sounds so that the guitar heads like myself uh, have plenty to chew on. And, and, and it did unite the tribes. It was one of these records that pretty much everybody in the scene liked and, and immediately puts France on the map. And it's interesting. It tells the story of how, um, these Midwesterners get hip to Daft Punk and that, that, um, David Prince heard it played by Richie Houghton in Manchester in the fall of 1995. So Richie Houghton's all the way over from Detroit playing a Daft Punk record in his set. The Daft Punk record came out on Soma, which was a label out of Glasgow that at that time had a high reputation. A lot of heads called it, you know, this is it. If it's on Soma, I want to have it. 
Uh, so they had that kind of credibility. And then Prince um, saw them live just that same weekend or even maybe the same night in the former factory records offices in Manchester, was blown away by their live PA and the skills they had and that, you know, the opposite of Moby. I think that's another sort of subtext here is that after all the bitching about Moby just popping in the debt, not really doing anything, even bringing in fake sidemen to stand there and pretend to play instruments that these guys are all doing it live. And Matos doesn't come out and say it, but the comparison is pretty implicit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Daft Punk had a, like a bit of a Detroit ethos as far as just unwinding their tracks and just, uh, just doing a bit of a jam session with a couple samples and stuff. And that's one of the cool things, uh, when you watch the, their even further set, it's available. There's two different recordings of it on, on YouTube of the video. And one of them, you get a bit more of a, of a look at what, uh, Bangalter is doing on the gear. And there's points where he just like grabs like a snip of static curls it down and then runs it through like some distortion and then puts that onto a loop and then puts a beat over the loop and all of a sudden you've got rolling and scratching which was the b-side to defunct and it's just really impressive to watch someone do that in a field in the middle of nowhere yeah i uh, highly recommended that video live video but we got to take a word from our sponsor when we come back we'll hear how it was that david prince wasn't even the guy who managed to book daft punk to come to the midwest one of his compadres managed to beat him to it all right and so we were talking about how david prince who's one of 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 Kurt X's partners in not an official partner in the drop bass network but very much involved in the further promotions he had heard daft punk's record uh, in Manchester, and then coincidentally catches them live just hours later in Manchester. And he tries to book them for further, but it turns out Woody McBride had already played with them at Rex in Paris and had already booked them. So, um, yeah, many tendrils, and this scene has people flying across uh, the Atlantic willy-nilly, and, and connections are being made all over the place. And for, and, and it was interesting, like with Aphex Twin, they knew exactly how much he got paid, 500 bucks in 1994. This time they're paying between 700 and 1,000 and two sets of plane tickets to Daft Punk to come out and do the show. And, um, you know, McBride had noticed, again, that he did live PAs and he admired their style and their way of doing it. And so um, da Funk was the, the first record. It's classic French touch. What do you say? It's the definitive, uh, record of French touch. Uh, well, French touch. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so because the whole idea with French touch is it's got that filtered house sound, but it's also got really boxy, crunchy Chicago, uh, drum machines and, and kind of, uh, techno sounds to it. So yeah, I, I would say that it's one of them. Okay, and and it, and Matos brings it back to the DJs, and again, this is something where I think Matos has it over Reynolds, and not that we don't love Simon Reynolds and didn't learn a ton from him, but he kind of uh, minimized the importance of DJing in in it and focused more on the record producers. But Matos points out that this record defunct was based on the DJing styles of David Guetta, Martin Solveig, and and Nick Nice, and and what they've been hearing in the clubs in Paris. So again, just like with Jungle. Um, you know, Fabio and Groove Rider and the, and the uh, underground radio DJs pioneering the sound on the radio, taking records that existed and manipulating them and changing the sound. And then the producers hear that and make records that sound that way out of the box. And yeah, so Guetta's, Guetta's club nights were kind of known for being the place to be for a lot of these producers because they could go there inside these gay clubs. So they, as they said, there's no tourists, quote unquote. So you can you can go in there and only get the people who are really into 
into this kind of music and and really hear it kind of in, in a pure fashion. And there was a real sense of community and there was a real sense of a regional sound that was developing through it. And that's why, you know, it's called French Touch now is because France really put it on the map. And it's crazy how many people come out even now from France trying to do something kind of different. But you're still you listen to it and you're like, OK, these guys are from France. <laughs> it's in their blood now. It's hard to escape once something becomes a regional culture. And Matos describes it as disco loops going in and out of oral focus, oral focus after being sent through whooshing low pass filters. But the, the, the sort of secret sauce that Daft Punk had was that they always had song structures and their and their tracks had a verse chorus logic and, quote, Daft Punk got radio play. And even the B-side, which you had mentioned before, Rollin' and Scratchin', that was a big hit in the Midwest as well. Just as important, I mean, big hit, underground hit in the scene in the Midwest. It was, quote, driving hard acid, totally what drop bass was all about. So these guys are excited to have Daft Punk um come in and headline in the next further. Yeah, and this is the underground period of Daft Punk. They put the funk out in uh, 1995. Homework doesn't come out till 1997. So there's this two-year two, two year gap where they're basically the bells of the underground ball and uh, and they're just starting to kind of go out and go everywhere. And uh, Drop Bass would be the first people to bring them to America. Yeah, and, and again, this is a scene that we've seen kind of eats its own. Like when you see somebody like Moby or the Prodigy get kind of big, there's a significant backlash with their base in the underground and something like the KLF, their entire career is playing with this notion of, you know, what's underground, what's pop, what's credible, what's nonsense. And so uh, I think Daft Punk made a pretty canny move. I don't know if it was deliberate on their part to wait that long to put out an album, but they stayed underground. They really consolidated their strength before they took it big. And now we detour to Chicago. And he does a real nice history of Chicago in this period. Um, and that the Chicago scene is unique because House was so big and dominant in Chicago in the 80s. It was on the radio. It was in the record stores. It was in the clubs. It was also at the parties. So you didn't have to be necessarily over 21 uh, to hear House. You could hear it being played you know, at school auditoriums and afternoon shows and stuff like that. So in Chicago and the suburban area around Chicago, they started having raves pop up, but it was all house music. It wasn't as much techno. It wasn't acid house. It wasn't hardcore. It was house, 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 because these kids had grown up hearing house on the radio in the 80s. And that had changed in the 90s, but that sort of cultural echo lingered. Had a new wave of DJs like uh, Boo Williams, Paul Johnson, Justin Long were the top draws on the scene. And this is also a period that uh, Matos analogizes to um, the late 60s when rock rediscovered country and blues. And you have things like country rock and, and blues rock. And in the mid-90s, ravers start looking back at their roots and look at early house out of Chicago and early technology of Detroit and start making records that kind of consciously go back to those roots and emulate that stuff. And it's a big scene. You get in 1,500 to 2,000 kids uh, drawn to raves at roller rinks. Um, it's an open, diverse scene. Lots of people of different ethnicities, different sexualities, but it's mostly white and suburban, so there's still a little bit of tension. And then he comes back to Curtis Jones a.k.a. Green Velvet and his casual records, who's doing some of his best stuff. Um, the Flash record comes out in 1995, and, and Green Velvet was his nominated record for harder-hitting tracks that blurred the lines between house and techno, and Flash is, in particular, a commentary 
uh, of the dangers. And, and I mean, it's funny, it's tongue in cheek. And it's kind of like he's mocking the parental council or whatever the Tipper Gore's music censoring organization was. He's kind of mocking that and mocking the dare, you know, this is your brain on drugs stuff, which was so big in the eighties and early nineties, but he's also seen some scary things. And so it's, it's got yeah, that power. There's always that kind of, everybody in the rave scene takes a, a tongue in cheek approach to the, to the drug issue and everybody's laughing about it and everybody's making double entendres and references to it and wink winks to it and both saying, Oh, it's not that bad. And at the same time also recognizing sometimes, yes, it is that bad. And, uh, apparently Chicago's scene was starting to skew younger. You were seeing younger kids coming in 15 year olds, 14 year olds, stuff like that. And, uh, for Curtis Jones being there, um, uh, as a person who doesn't do drugs or didn't do drugs at that time, uh, he was seeing, you know, kids just basically rolling around on the floor and it made him uncomfortable. So you make this track that's kind of a joke track, but kind of a serious track the same in the same way that I think uh, Richie Houghton was making some of his uh, faux hardcore tracks that were, you know, uh, commentaries that, that sure would get you on a rush and 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 feel real good while you were high. But they were making a commentary on on kind of what was going on having their cake and eating it too and 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 jones's stuff had always been funny i mean percolator everything from the beginning was there was always a, a comedic aspect to it but damn flash is a great record I, uh, that might be the peak of the green velvet i've heard the way he uses the snare drums to um stand in for the flash bulbs when he exposes a, a scandal is it's just brilliant i really the more i hear green velvet the more i like him um but let's go ahead and hear our next track this is delta nine Hardcore Chicago from 1994. And that was Delta Nine's Hardcore Chicago from 1994. And why'd you pick that one? Uh, you know, Delta Nine is a is one of the key Chicago hardcore producers. And I figured if you wanted to hear what Midwest hardcore was all about, Delta Nine was a perfect person to play. Just to give people an idea of when, you know, we talk about hardcore being played at these drop-based network parties. This is the intensity of the hardcore that's getting played at these drop-based network parties. So strap in. I see. Yes, you got to get got to be ready for that. And and I do want to mention that that the integrated raves were a pretty big deal in Chicago because it's such a segregated city. It is still a segregated city and still super messed up um, and super racist. And uh, but that that these raves were a little bit of a blow against the empire there and and brought some people together. And well, that then, was always kind of the big thing about rave is that, you know, it gave the younger generations a chance to come out and get together in a way that society is basically built up to kind of keep everything apart. You know, the neighborhoods are segregated. The businesses are kind of segregated. School systems are segregated. But you have yeah. these raves where all of a sudden everybody can get together. And most of the people at these parties are under the age of 20. They don't come with all that baggage that their parents had. 
and they're looking to get along, you know, they're, they're, they're looking to, to build this, this new utopia where it doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're black or you're white, or you're straight or you're gay or, or, you know, any color of the rainbow, it doesn't matter. And that was one of the big pushes, you know, like the idea of going out and going to a bar where you're going to get punched in the face or groped, or you go to a rave where everybody is one. To me, it always made a lot of sense. You go where everybody is one. Yep. Plur, plur, plur. And then Matos gets into a discussion of Dance Mania Records, which had been founded in 1985 by Jesse Saunders, who made the first um, on and on, the first house record. Every time I say something now, uh, once I once I chided Matos about that stupid Ken Casey Tom Wolf thing, now I can just, I know he's listening and he's going to jump me for every single thing I screw up. So uh, uh, try not to be self-conscious there. But uh the record label is founded by Jesse Saunders, but it's run by a guy named Raymond Barney from the beginning. And by the mid nineties, it's all his. And so I, and it does, there's no discussion of their business practices. So they must be a big step up from tracks records uh, of the eighties, which were notorious. They've been putting stuff out since the eighties, classics like Farley, Jack Master, Funk's house nation, which was put out by the house master boys, Marshall Jefferson's uh, seven ways to Jack by Hercules. And so Sanders had moved to LA and Barney stayed, and he was signing new Southside talent like Paul Johnson and DJ Funk that I mentioned earlier, who were big local draws on the DJ party scene. Uh, they talked about Paul Johnson. He's pretty interesting. He was uh, wheelchair-bound after being accidentally shot in 1987 by a friend. Didn't let that hold him back. Um, was uh, a, a top house producer through this whole period. Mato says he created a sound both raw and versatile, like a genre exercise by a low-budget filmmaker. And so tracks like Welcome to the Warehouse, 1994, Mato calls it airy disco cut-up, and uh, Feel My MF Bass from 1994, and then Get Get Down from 1999 is probably his most famous track, uh, which with a piano part that Matos describes as it amounts to a distillation of every piano riff on every house hit ever. So that's quite a feat because the piano riffs are key uh, to the house sound. And then it talks about DJ Funk, a.k.a. Charles Chambers, who he calls Charles Chicago House's Luther Campbell. Oh, I don't know who Luther Campbell is. What? You don't know who Luther Campbell is? Luke Skywalker, the two live crew, Miami uh, booty bass, dude. The, 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 uh, I mean, two live crew. Okay, that no, I, I know okay. two live crew. That makes sense. But just Luther Campbell, it was one, one, one name too, too uh, exclusive into the knowledge, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that if you're not if you're not thinking about him in this context, and also he's known by as Uncle Luke after uh, uh, whoever owned the copyright to Luke Skywalker made him stop using that. Uh, uh, Another reason to hate George Lucas. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. And Lucy Campbell is also very important because he won a very important First Amendment case uh, of doing a parody, I think, of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, which enshrined in law the right to do parodies. One of the few hip-hop legal cases of that era that got a fair hearing went all this way to the Supreme Court and won, I think because it was about speech rather than about sampling and musical etiquette where the judges were really lost. But anyway, Luther Campbell did dirty music out of Miami and, and uh, DJ funk was doing similar stuff. Tracks like pussy ride, move that motherfucker and bitches that we played. Um, he was raised in both Detroit and Chicago. And so he had seen the DJs in both places. He felt the Detroit DJs maybe had better cutting technique, but that the Chicago DJs rocked the party better. And that was his goal was to rock the party. He started out in hip hop. He worked with a group called do or die. They had a top 20 hit in 1996 with a song called Poe pimp. 
but he felt unacknowledged when they signed with Rapalot and Virgin um, and, and left him out. So he changed direction, went full on house, printed up 500 copies of his own album and took it to Barney for distribution. But Barney signed him to Dance Mania instead and said, hey, this record's hot. Let's make it really big. I can I can get this out there and, and do it. And it's just it, it is similar in multiple ways, not just in the in the sexualized lyrics and chants on the records, but also because of its emphasis on Roland 808s and 909s drum machines with those mega mega heavy bass sounds and quote i make my music for the girls to get down and he knows if the girls are dancing the guys will follow and he's a prime mover of two subgenres ghetto house and booty house what's the difference uh you know i think uh, ghetto house is a bit of a wider uh, a wider label any anything that's got kind of that dirty uh, chicago rawness to it can get put into ghetto house and it's one of those things where i feel like you you kind of got to watch out because it's one of those things where billboard would just call music urban because it's black and yes. so all of a sudden people are getting put into ghetto house even though it's not ghetto house so i i always want to make sure that people are considered ghetto house pioneers before i dub something ghetto house but because there was just a lot of stuff like uh, green velvet uh, some of his dirtier stuff could be considered ghetto house um uh, booty house is easier to identify because it, it it really boils it down to mostly just the drums the bass and whatever filthy filthy lyrics you can get when you when you're talking about uh, luke skywalker and 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 all them you know booty house really uh takes that to the to the next level and i think you were mentioning before you know like we don't endorse the lyrics in this song uh, booty house was just so ridiculous that you had to laugh uh obviously some people were upset there was a couple of posts popping up online pointing out him how misogynistic the lyrics could be or are but at a certain point i feel like it, to criticize the song for calling women bitches when it also talks about eating pubic hair by the pound you just have to take these things into context and realize it's all over the top fun. Yeah. And also in the cultural context, I mean, it's just a fact that the African-American uh, culture is more comfortable with sexuality than uh, Anglo-Americans have been. And I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. I mean, obviously there's it's, sex is a double-edged sword and, and there's always trade-offs, but these are people expressing their sexuality in in a very earthy, outgoing way, and they're comfortable with it. Not, I, I'm not going to knock it. It's not uh, my culture, but I can admire it from the side. And it's also interesting that booty dance is a, booty house is aimed at female audience. It's and it, and this use DJ Funk talks about how we put these imperative phrases in there, like um, lots of bitch get your ass on the floor and call outs like wear them hoes out and s stuff that actually would work to get women out on the dance floor. And that's what his goal was with this music was to draw in women, get them dancing and that'll bring in the dudes. And then you have a big crowd. So yeah, I guess they took it all back. Uh, and, and the women were down with it because, uh, because as, as I said, it was, it was fun and, and nobody, uh, in that context, uh, everybody's just having a good time. Yeah, and I think if people are comfortable with themselves and and comfortable booty dancing and twerking and whatever, you know, there, there's no thing. A lot of the times, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. Never mind. <laughs> but um, you, you know, but tell uh, us the black experience, Nate. Not, it's, I was going to get into some sexist remark that I that I probably would regret. So I'm tell us say. about women, Nate. <laughs> I've How seen do they them. feel? Yeah, yeah, I talked to him, but um, apparently this stuff was banging. Then Matos gets into this weird little aside. It's not a weird aside, but 
kind of a non sequitur where he tells the history of fat pants, which emerged around this time. A guy from Noel Steen of Vancouver designs them in 1994. They're designed to be tight on the ass with white straight legs that ultimately then flare out to cover the entire shoe. And, and he, um, we, I think the the New York scene, some people have making been making homemade versions of that they talked about earlier. But he gets a deal with Laramie, and they start manufacturing them, and it becomes the uniform for ravers all over the country. Sadly, Steen made a terrible deal and ended up getting paid by the hour, basically minimum wage. So, kind of screwed himself. And I'm curious to see if Steen is going to come back into the story or not. But I think that covering the fashion is an important part of it. Yeah, well. I feel like this is kind of like a step to getting us back into the Midwest raves where where you did have a lot of these people wearing these uh, fat pants and stuff like that. And it's definitely a, a raver trend that I did not participate in just because I could not pull it off. Yeah. And, and the people who did frequently came back from these raves in the Midwest with their pants covered in mud on the bottom. But let's hear our last track. This is Daft Punk live and even further from live it even further in 1996 30 seconds out of like an hour long video how'd you pick this particular snippet ah, i thought it was just the perfect part to to prove the fact that this was a really live performance uh, these are tracks that uh, that everybody's or or that anybody that's familiar with daft punk are familiar with these tracks and hearing it live you realize the fact that yes they were manipulating things yes they were they were running running these loops on and, and doing improv oh, with them all Daft Punk live sets are always a little bit different because they know what they're doing and they know what they're going for, but they do jam out on it, which is, uh, you know, if, if you're wondering whether or not it's a live PA or not, the ability to improvise or, 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 or make a, you know, one show sound different than the other is kind of the gold standard for knowing as to whether or not you have a legitimate live act or if you're just kind of uh, a fake live PA. Like, say, Moby maybe would have been doing and and or even bands like ministry were doing that kind of stuff at the time i've even heard allegations that u2 uh, was playing to pre-recorded tapes uh, it's at, funny at you concerts. say u2 i i had a live pa as well and people accused us of of of, of being fake and you know i used to play off of uh, ableton uh so it was kind of fake i guess but we had a live guitarist and everything so it's like hard to it's like what's more live than that i know how live so, can you get it's just it, it, you know it's one of those uh, salty raver things. How live is the live PA? So definitely always a uh, topic of conversation. But yeah, I think we're going to go back to even further now. I think it's time to 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 wrap up the uh, all the Chicago stuff and start talking about the Midwest a little bit more and and get into that. Yeah, sorry, I got a, a flower delivery for my wife that's distracting the dog and, and throwing me off. But um, back to the action. Then then he segues back into the event itself even further. Um, that talks about Terry Mullen, who was um, voted 
the Midwest DJ of 1995 by M.W. Raves, the Midwest Raves BBS bulletin board service. That was time. And he's the mixtape king. And this is a phenomenon that's huge in hip hop around this time. It's also a big part of the dance scene. And that's when DJs would, and this has been going on since the 70s when people would record um, live sets from DJs in the 70s out at the at the discos and the record labels wouldn't license this stuff so they had to put them out as bootlegs and it becomes this big tradition and by the mid 90s you know entire scenes like Houston and Memphis their hip hop scenes are being carried by mixtapes and New York has a huge mixtape scene and it's the same thing in EDM where these rave DJs will take you know like somebody like Terry Mullen would sit down with his records and he would be doing cuts and mixes doing blends all the techniques of a DJ and um, making these mixtapes that they would distribute. Some of these guys were, were selling. I think he was selling. The guy that started in Chicago was Bad Boy Bill, a.k.a. William Rinkosik, who was one of the later Hot Mix 5. There's more than five guys in the Hot Mix 5, but they were radio DJs who did pioneering house mixes live on the air. Um, Bill likely sold millions of mixtapes, but it was under the radar of the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, and um, he got yeah, away with Bad it. Yeah, Bad Boy Bill is one of those names that on like on the top of most flyers from like 93 to 98, Bad Boy Bill was always up at the top, and it was largely off the strength of his his mixtapes. And he was one of those rare house guys that, that had a sound that was jacking enough that the energy was there for ravers. So he was he was a big deal in the clubs and in the raves as well. Yep. And then Mullen becomes his heir apparent and starts um, doing mixtapes in the mid 90s and, and uh, tons, you know, he's basically doing a live PA live to the tape, um, similar kind of to what DJ Screw was doing in Houston, not that he was screwing and chopping and slowing things down, but he's scratching and doing a live mix there for the recording. And his big tape like the peak of his career as a mixed guy was this new school fusion volume two from 1995, um, which sold 10,000 copies, which is what he calls, uh, Matos calls uh, underground platinum uh, for this stuff. And he, he's just gotten his hands on the Daft Punk defunct single. And he throws defunct and the B side rolling and scratching on at the end. And that has the effect because this is the most popular mixtape in the Midwest. And this is how people are hearing the new music. This stuff isn't on the radio. It's not on MTV. It's, there's some CD compilations, but these mixtapes by DJs in the scene are so much better and it's popular. And so this sort of sets the scene so that the people of the Midwest, the fans of the Midwest, are now familiar with Daft Punk as well as the Cognoscenti, like these DJs that get to travel to Manchester and Paris every kid in Chicago who's in the scene and has their hands on the new school fusion mixtape has heard Daft Punk's defunct and it's making an impact. Yeah. These mixtapes can't be, uh, overstated for the amount of influence that they would have. Like, uh, I think this is the beginning of the time where you have people who are starting to get educated about this music because before you just, you just couldn't, but now the internet's making some headway. You can look some things up. You can get some mixtapes from these DJs and start figuring out what you like and what you don't. So there's a little bit more of a, a pull than a push now where the ravers starting to, to, to get educated. Yeah. And, and, um, it's, uh, 
the thing, the, the funny thing that comes out is that the record companies actually discovered this stuff as a great way to promote their music. So they've got this love-hate relationship where sometimes they're calling the police to bust distributors of this stuff. This this comes to a head around 2000 with all the other big crackdowns. But they are also paying sometimes these DJs to include their records on the mixtapes. So, um, you know, just a classic case of, of, of the law and, and the music scene not quite being in sync. But now let's talk about even further the party of the chapter proper. It happens at Eagle Cave, which is a campground in southeast Wisconsin, again with the rain and mud. Somebody compared it to the Night of the Living Dead, which is the classic George Romero horror movie from 1968, which features lots of rain, dark highways and zombies wandering around in the road. And again, lots of drugs. People were apparently selling drugs out of the ambulance. Tisk tisk. I got to disapprove on that one. Um, people are candy flipping, which means combining MDMA and LSD. They're also huffing nitrous oxide out of the balloons. They're taking a special K, a.k.a. ketamine. The Rainbow family there is, is there, like I mentioned, post Jerry Garcia's death. And um, then he gets into this this thing about how house music is disco's revenge and how that was a prevalent sentiment of mid-90s house and he mentions tracks like paul johnson's welcome to the warehouse throw by paperclip people uh the bomb these sounds followed in my mind by the Bucketheads, which is kenny dope gonzalez of masters at work uh disco's revenge by gusto which was the omnipresent track and even further the djs are playing it in the main tents people are playing um setting up their own tables and sound systems on the sides and playing it so that's kind of the, I guess, the ambient sound of, of this event is, is Disco's Revenge. So House is having a big comeback uh, at this period. And um, Boo Williams, who's a casual uh, affiliated DJ, and casual was Green Velvet, Curtis Jones's record label. Uh, he was booked and played there. They also booked Glenn Underground, who didn't bother to show up because he didn't like playing to, quote, fucked up white kids. And um, again... This is something, this tension you see between a lot of these sort of, a lot of times the house DJs would be straight edge guys who weren't into drugs and alcohol and weren't into that kind of party. They wanted to play in the clubs to their folks. They weren't into the stoned out young white kids. And also the house DJs, a lot of the time were in the second room or on the 4 a.m. slot, ended up playing second fiddle to people, to the headliners who are playing, say, you know, quote unquote, intelligent techno or hardcore GABA or something like that, that really is pretty antithetical to what the house DJs were doing. So there's still some tension there. Yeah. You have to figure there's guys that are, that are basically, you know, seven hours away, they get booked for this thing, maybe for a hundred or $200. They're hearing stories about how it's a rained out, you know, shit show and how it's like uh, sub sub degree temperatures. They remember the stories from all the other drop base parties and they wonder, do I really want to spend all this time to go out there to possibly get stiffed by the promoter as far as payment goes to possibly not play or to possibly have some like acid head raver grab his records and run away. Yeah, or drop your stuff in the mud the whole bit. But one thing about Daft Punk is that partly because of of their appearance on that mixtape we talked about, uh, the Terry Mellon mixtape, the Chicago set wanted to see them. So a lot of the Chicago club house fans came out to even further who normally would stay far away from these kind of muddy raves. Um, the Daft Punk played at 2 a.m. Saturday night, main tent, totally packed. People talk about how, you know, it's just one of those shows where everybody's racing to get to the main tent when they realize Daft Punk was playing. And the, Nick Nice says that what they were doing was so completely on a higher level than what anybody else was doing with live gear, especially anybody who made music back then. So again, the implicit comparison to Moby and others who are just 
making records in the studio and then playing them on dat tape live and he said the way they put it together and made it flow it was like a dj set they segued it all together and it was revolutionary this was kind of surprising to me since this music very much evolved being played by people like francis grasso who would mix records and segue and 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 do all this stuff so it's interesting that it takes basically 25 years for somebody to both be a producer and to be doing full full on high level DJing live. Um, it's so. kind of like, you know, it's a revolutionary act to rap on a record. Uh, and, and but it just seems it just seems so natural and, and obvious now. Uh, when when live PAs came out and people started doing this, the obvious uh, the idea was you're not DJing, so you shouldn't be mixing your tracks together. This is a live PA. People need to know that this is the track. This is the track you wrote. You're going to play from start to finish. There's going to be an end, and then you're going to play the next track. So the idea that this live PA comes along and rolls the whole thing into a continuous one hour uh, experience was just as revolutionary. It was like, you know, it's an obvious in, in retrospect, but at the time there was just established rules for the ways things were done. Yeah. And it hadn't been done before done in this way. And, and now it was. And so, but it's interesting. They also puts it in the context, like Frankie bones from, uh, Brooklyn comes out and follows it with a gabber set. And then Mixmaster Morris does a 6 a.m. ambient set, and he's doing ambient jungle, which is another little aside that Matos gets into. And he mentions LTJ Bookham, the, the London DJ's logical progression, which was a two-CD set that came out in April 96 and a compilation for artists on his good-looking label that was an utter inversion of UK hardcore's giddy thrills. And we talked about uh, Intel or Ambient Jungle with Reynolds. And it's kind of the beginning of drum and bass, I guess, and, and this movement of jungle away uh, from its original roots in the hardcore scene, especially the, the, the African Anglo elements of the the hardcore scene and into this kind of more sophisticated hoity-toity stuff. Um, then you had Alice Reese's uh, Pulp Fiction, which smoothed out the kinks in Jungle's naughty groove, just enough to cross over to house and techno fans. So Jungle is making its presence felt in the Midwest a little bit later than it did in in uh, the UK. And then talks about Sunday night. So it's a multi-night fest. The cops don't shut this one down. If anything, it was even better than Saturday. You had Nick Nice opening. You had uh, Boo Williams uh, mixing MLK's I Have a Dream speech over a jazzy disco house background. And Scott Hardkiss debuts his remix of Elton John's Rocket Man, which was supposed to come out officially a couple years earlier, but uh, was not released for various reasons. So he had like an exclusive to drop. And then um, David Prince then pulls back after this event. Things got too crazy. He was seeing kids using heroin. He was uh, fighting with the county fire commissioner over fireworks and sitting there saying, you know, I'm yelling at the fire commissioner with pockets full of cash and drugs. It was probably a sign that I'm too over the top to be doing this. So final thoughts on even further. Yeah, I mean, David Prince steps back after this. Uh, I think Kurt X goes on until the rave law, which uh, which is the the rave... Uh, the Rave Act, which is, uh, you know, basically a federal makes it a federal crime to throw a rave. Uh, all these guys were were throwing parties. I think they were saying it was like one every two weeks. So they were they were they were carrying things, uh, and it's exhausting. Everybody was starting to feel frazzled after after these events, and every single event came with, uh, you know, you roll a die, die as to whether or not the cops come and shut you down, or if they're going to come and arrest you, or if you know uh, a municipality is going to figure out a way 
with their, uh, you know, their mass gathering laws to maybe fine you 10,000, 50,000, whatever dollars. So we're, we're, we're hitting the point where, you know, things are going well, but the people running the events are just, uh, you know, starting to feel like it's too much heat as usual. When things start to go good, there's that counterbalance that comes along and crushes it. So I think that's what maybe we're going to see in the future chapters. Ah, a little a little precog for next time. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been discussing the underground is massive, how electronics dance how electronic dance music conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. And next time when we come back, let me look at the table of contents and see what we'll be discussing. We'll be talking about organic ninety-six, back to San Bernardino, California, June twenty-second. 1996. So just a couple weeks in a narrative time from where we are at even further, but all the way out on the West Coast. So for Ryan Harkness and Nate Wilcox, thanks for listening. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boltfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate discuss Organic 96, which brought the Chemical Brothers to the United States and showed real music biz muscle getting behind rave. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 